Hello and welcome to The Bunker USA. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Only with gun violence, Ezra Klein wrote, do we respond to repeated tragedies by saying that mourning is acceptable, but discussing how to prevent more tragedy is not. Talking about how to stop a mass shooting in the aftermath of a string of mass shootings isn't too soon, it's much too late. My guest today is an associate professor of emergency medicine, health behavior, and health education at the University of Michigan. He's the co-director of the Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention, the director of the CDC-funded University of Michigan Injury Prevention Center, and part of the leadership team at the Firearm Safety Among Children and Teens Consortium. Welcome to the bunker, Dr. Patrick Carter. Thank you so much for having me. There have been over three hundred mass shootings according to the gun violence archive in 2023 and we're only halfway through the year and that's not an anomalous number either why are we seeing such figures well we don't know exactly why the mass shooting numbers are increasing but we do know that they are increasing in number as well as the number of casualties that we're seeing uh, in each of these events but i think it's important to consider the context in which that's occurring, because we're also seeing that the overall number of firearm injuries that we see every year in the United States are continuing to increase. And really this increase started in the early to mid 2000s and has uh, continued to rise significantly year after year since that time frame, really paralleling the rise that we saw in the early 1990s. And in fact, in this last year of data that we have available from the CDC, we're seeing that over 45,000 deaths are occurring in the United States from firearms. And that's the highest absolute number of deaths we've ever seen. Does it track vaguely the number of guns out there? Is the number of guns increasing? I mean, I know obviously correlation is not an absolute proof, but it would be an indication. Sure. We do know that the number of firearms that are in the U.S. stock of firearms is continuing to increase. We have over, as far as we can tell from the numbers, over 350 million firearms in the United States. What we also know about that is that a smaller proportion of the U.S. public is uh, owning more and more firearms. So, while the overall percentage of the public that owns firearms has decreased over time, the number of firearms that each individual who chooses to own firearms owns has gone up. Oh, wow, that's extraordinary. So fewer people are more armed, as it were. Yes. I want to look more specifically at school shootings. It's, it's something I think is fair to say that the rest of the world associates with the U.S., Last year's stats show that there were 51 school shootings that resulted in death or injury, so basically one a week. Stats also show that firearms are the leading killer of people aged 1 to 19, which I find staggering. Is there a sense that the debate's focus on gun ownership in a way lets schools a little bit off the hook from their safeguarding duty? I think the focus has been largely around how do we prevent these tragic events from occurring at the school level. And that has led to a focus on, you know, what we call these school hardening tactics, things like, you know, metal detectors and lockdowns Mm -hmm. and armed security guards. And while I think it's important to think about what we do in those moments when a person with a firearm is in a school and how do we protect kids from harm, 
It's also important to take a step back and focus way upstream of that. What are the school conditions and climates that um, lead to escalation of, of violence into a lethal event? And what are the conditions of access to unsecured firearms by adolescents that might bring that firearm to school? And how do we prevent that from occurring? Because if we're able to focus more holistically uh, on this problem, then we can also move way upstream and prevent these events from occurring. When you look at this more holistic picture that you suggest, do you see any pattern? Do you see things that are red flags, as it were, that repeat themselves in these school shootings that could act as earlier prevention markers? I think the biggest risk factor that we see is easy access to unsecured firearms. When we think about the potential for a student, an adolescent, a teen to gain access to an unsecured firearm, they're impulsive, they may be going through a mental health crisis, and the ability to access that firearm in that moment, bring it to school and potentially cause a tragic event is really, I think, the number one preventable thing that we can focus on. So how do we keep teens who should not have access to firearms from gaining access to them. Okay, so let's split this off into two things and look at, um, first of all, your institute's research shows that in around 74% of all school shootings, the shooter used guns, there were often more than one, that belonged to a relative. So Putting aside the sale of firearms, could this partly be made better by more stringent requirements on the storage of firearms? Absolutely. And I just want to point out that data actually is not from our institute. That data is from the FBI investigation. But I think it is important to think about how folks who choose to own firearms store those firearms and what can we do to uh, keep kids from gaining access to them. How do we make sure that they're locked up in a way that kids cannot get access to them. Because we know that so many of them come from a family member or a household that has firearms and are kept in unsecure ways. Okay, and now looking at the other leg of that, the purchase of firearms, how is it for a, a young person to buy a gun in the US? And because I'm aware it's state by state and sometimes county by county, so give me an example of the most stringent conditions that exist and an example of the easiest? Well, you know, from uh, federally licensed firearm dealers, somebody who is under 18 can't purchase a firearm on their own. That doesn't mean they can't get access to them. Many firearm owners purchase firearms and use them in legal ways with their teenagers for hunting and target shooting and other activities that uh, is important to the cultural landscape of the United States. But I don't think that that negates the need to make sure that those firearms are out of reach from those children, you know, at those high-risk times. Even if um, gun sales were banned tomorrow, I was reading, so Stuart Stafford, I think, wrote, America is drowning in guns. It would take decades to actually get guns out of ready circulation anyway. So it's important to be considering what you do with the guns that are already out there, rather than the focus being completely on the sale of them. 
And and I think it's important that we think about this holistically in that there isn't a single solution. It's not about banning guns, which I don't, from a practical standpoint, think is a reality in the United States, given you know, the cultural landscape, the legal landscape, the Second Amendment, all of those components. But I do think there are steps along the way that we can take to make the situation safer and reduce harm. So if we think about at the point of sale, making sure that new gun owners are trained around the concept of safety and what are safety measures, what's adequate, what's not adequate, the importance of keeping guns out of the hands of teens who may be impulsive and may in in a moment of crisis act out and gain access to that firearm, all the way downstream to what are the things that we need to put in place at the school to to prevent it? So it's it's not about a single solution. It's about chipping away at all of these different pieces. If we think about the issue around smart guns, um, where only certain people are allowed or able to fire the gun, it's absolutely true, and you'll hear folks talk about it, that that type of technology, while it exists, um, will not penetrate the market in a real way to have a substantial effect for years. That doesn't mean we shouldn't think about that as a potential solution. It just means it can't be the only solution. We have to think about what are the other safe storage options? What are the training options? What are the policy options that we can put in place to prevent teenagers from gaining access to firearms? We know, for example, that child access prevention laws, which are a law that's um, common in some states in the United States, can be a very effective tool to prevent parents from leaving their firearms in unsecured ways that teens can gain access to them. Red flag laws, uh, there's something that President Biden has pushed for an increase uh, since his time in office. What exactly are they? Because I think people outside the US may have trouble understanding them. So what are they and how do they operate? So a red flag law, which is uh, um, in most states are called extreme risk protection orders, is essentially a policy tool that some states have adopted where when uh, a person is concerned about a family member or somebody else that has access to firearms potentially being a harm to either themselves or somebody else, they can file a petition with the court system, with the legal system, to temporarily have those firearms removed from the individual Uh, until they get the mental health help or the assistance they need to ensure that they're not a danger to themselves or somebody else. And we've seen in the data that in states that have implemented uh, extreme risk protection order laws that they've been an effective tool for decreasing suicides and self-harm. We don't know yet how effective they will be for the problem of mass shootings and homicides. We are currently studying that and trying to figure that out in the data. Were some states quite resistant to those laws? Well, the implementation of extreme risk protection orders involves the idea of temporarily not allowing somebody to own and have firearms. And so there are some who would argue that that is potentially an infringement on their Second Amendment right, their rights to liberty and freedom. However, you know, the process of putting in place an extreme risk protection order involves a standard due process court hearings that evaluate whether or not the petitioner who files the extreme risk protection order, whether their argument has merit, and the court determines whether or not there's merit there to potentially temporarily remove firearms from that individual, and and then the firearms are removed. So 
I would argue that there is due process involved in the in the implementation of these laws when they're done correctly, and and so and this is a temporary order, so it's not like they are never allowed to have firearms again. It's it's to the period of time for which they get the help that they need. I'm interested that you brought out rights and freedoms and the sort of the interplay between those two things. Um, Taylor Schumann makes that distinction, and, and he says that real freedom is sending your kids to school with the confidence that they'll come home at the end of the day. Um, presumably, even the most passionate gun owner could not disagree with that sentiment. So is there a way to disentangle the debate on gun ownership in general from the safety of children in particular, just in order to bring down the temperature of the debate, just so the stakes are not all or nothing all the time? Well, you make a very good point there. And I mean, I always begin by this idea that we really want to focus on how do we prevent kids, children, adults from dying from firearm injuries. And when we don't focus on specifically the unfettered right to own firearms or the focus of restricting everybody from owning firearms, when we really just focus on the issue of how do we have less people dying every year from firearm injuries, we can start to chip away at what are some of those policy interventions, what are some of those programmatic interventions that we can put in place to cause less harm, but still allow people to own firearms in safe and legal ways. And I always point out, and I think it's important to point out that the majority of people who own firearms in the United States do so in legal ways, do not harm themselves, and are not a risk to other people. And so how do we protect that right while reducing harm and injury? It certainly is possible. We have done it in other areas of injury prevention. The analogy I like to use is with motor vehicle crash injuries. We saw in the mid-1950s in the United States a dramatic rise in the number of people dying from motor vehicle crash injuries. And by taking this holistic approach, by focusing on where are the drivers of the problem and what are the solutions in a programmatic and a policy way, over years, we were able to really dramatically decrease the number of people dying and being injured from motor vehicle crash injuries. And we did it without taking cars off the road. There are more vehicles on the road every day in the United States and around the world than ever. And mm. so mm. people have not been restricted from driving. They have not been you know, um, kept from having a legal right, uh, but we've able, been able to reduce harm and injury. And it's the same concept and approach and science that needs to be applied to the problem for firearms. You mentioned science and research, and, and part of your work is funded by the Center for Disease Control, but that's a pretty recent development. There had been a federal decades-long ban on gun control research. Why, why was it that in place? And, and how big a part has it played in sort of entrenching the problem? So it wouldn't call it a ban. Um, it, was, uh, it was an amendment that was added to the budget every year that basically said uh, the CDC and then later the NIH could not provide funding for research that advocated for, for gun control. The effect of that was the same as essentially a ban mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the federal funding agencies were, were shy about wanting to fund any research in this area. So the effect of that was quite chilling on the research community. I mean, when you think about 
uh, somebody who's developing a career in researching a public health problem, they can only go into a career in that space if there's funding available for their work, if there's opportunities for them to develop the research and the data and the um, publications and, and the pieces of their work that they need to drive a career along. So what we did was essentially lose an entire generation of researchers focused on this public health problem. And so now we're starting to see that you know, the CDC and the NIH are re-emerging with funding, and that's, um, that's absolutely great um, for, I think, addressing this problem. But we're decades behind. It will take time to build a body, as it were. Exactly. We need to rebuild the entire field of research and researchers. We need to fund people shifting their work from general areas of suicide and, and violence prevention to a focus on addressing firearms specifically. And how do we address that? We need to develop new researchers in this space. And all of that is, you know, is work that, you know, in academic institutions around the country is going on, but, but it's going to take decades to really rebuild that field. You're also involved in a project called Preventing Risky Firearm Behaviors Among Urban Youth Seeking Emergency Department Care. It's not the catchiest title, but it sort of does what it says. Um, can you tell me a bit about what you're learning from that? Sure. So this is a project that is really focused on using the healthcare space, the emergency department, as an opportunity to identify youth who may be at risk for firearm injury or perpetrating firearm injury against somebody else before it happens and identifying youth who are carrying firearms on a regular basis and really um, doing an intervention with them that involves counseling and support and linkage to resources in a way that can reduce their risk for risky firearm behaviors and, and negative mm. health outcomes. And it unfolds over you know, um, multiple counseling sessions, both in the emergency department and then after the emergency department. And it involves the use of technology to help augment that counseling that's provided. It sounds terrific. Um, now, we're moving into the section of our chat that, that I like to call the possibly unanswerables. Um, why do you think there are so many instances of firearm violence between young people who come from a socio-disadvantaged background? Well, I think you have to consider the legacy of structural racism, of redlining in the United States, of structural disadvantage that has created an environment in which um, there is not opportunity to succeed in an economic way um, that there, there might be in other communities, and that that has created the environment for for violence to occur and for the other, you know, factors that drive violence to occur. And we see that when we do interventions at a community level that, you know, invest economically in communities that help to lead towards positive development of adolescents and youth that provide them with employment mm -hmm. opportunities, we see those those levels of violence decrease. And so it's clear that a clear driver, as you say, of the problem is that socioeconomic disadvantage and how do we address that? To wrap things up, I wanted to look forward a little bit and ask something that I ask many of my guests on a range of topics. What is the lowest hanging fruit, policy-wise, that would make a big difference? Like, give me the, the easiest, most practical thing that government could enact tomorrow that will actually ma make a dent in this thing. 
Yeah, I think you're, you know, it's always tough to come up with a single policy. As I said, this is a very much a holistic problem and needs a holistic approach. But I think you're seeing some of the, for lack of a better term, lower hanging fruit that we can advance in a policy arena and in a programmatic arena starting to take shape. So you you mentioned extreme risk protection orders. I think Mm -hmm. they're Mm -hmm. a very promising policy. I think child access prevention laws. I think enhancing the purchasing to ensure that background checks are done in a universal way for all firearms that are purchased so that folks who shouldn't have access to firearms don't gain access to them. And I think from a policy lens, those are, are really key fundamental issues. That can't be the only solution. I think from a programmatic lens, we need to think about how we enhance locked storage and safe storage among parents and new gun owners. I think we need to do the types of community-based interventions and investment that are needed to reverse some of the trends that we see in interpersonal violence. Um, And we need a a focus on kind of all of those areas all at once. Last thing, I just want to explore your personal feelings on, on what you think this does to America's image. Presumably, you discuss these things with colleagues internationally. What is the impact on the country's reputation, I guess? How do you feel as an American to have this thing associated with a country so closely? Well, I think we Americans, <laughs> um, you know, often think of ourselves as in a lot of arenas, being on the leading edge of scientific discovery and advancement. And it's very clear on this issue, we are way behind where other countries are. And there's a real need to address this issue and to meet the unique issues that are American around this uh, to help solve this, because we are an outlier. There's no question about it. Mm. And we really do need to Um, address this problem. Dr. Patrick Carter, thank you so much for making a difficult subject more practical and more optimistic than it usually is. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like our work, you can and should support our work on the funding platform Patreon for as little as £3 a month. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of Ugandan writer and philosopher Agona Appel. By right, we arm... But by love, disarm. Now is the nation called to love. By gun control, we challenge not your right to arms, but your heart to sacrifice it. So give me not a reading of the law, but tales of love's deeds in hearts and homes. How racks have shed their arms like autumn leaves and turned the land from red to gold. This is Alexandreo in the bunker saying over and out. Bunker USA was written and presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker USA is a Podmasters production.